0: Welcome to Role-Playing History, a podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 44, Superhero Role-Playing Games, Part 2. So last week we did Part 1 of this piece on superhero tabletop role-playing games by covering the various incarnations of Marvel and DC licensed games. This week... You know, this week, let's stop worrying about having to be true to Marvel or DC and focus on what we really want out of a superhero role-playing game, a really damn good game. I'm going to cover four of them today, Champions, Villains and Vigilantes, Superworld, and in my opinion, the best of them all, Mutants and Masterminds. We're also going to take a deeper look at the hero system, which was actually built from the Champions game. Okay, so I just popped the tab on a can of Monster, the tour bus is gassed and ready to go, so uh, let's hit it. Champions wasn't the first superhero role-playing game, but when it came out, it was most definitely the best. Designed by Steve Peterson, George McDonald, Bruce Harlick, and Ray Greer, the first edition of Champions was published by Hero Games in 1981. The designers have admitted over the years they drew their inspiration from *Superhero 2044 and the Fantasy Trip, both of which I covered a bit in detail back in the gaming timelines I did early on in this show. The nuts and bolts of the champion system are something that might be familiar to a lot of gamers now, but they were kind of different for gamers over 40 years ago. Characters are built using a point-by system rather than die rolls. That's the big key, since most major games at the time, including D&D, used some sort of die rolls to determine the relevant abilities for characters. Champions decided to lay it all out like this. The player decides what kind of character they want to be, then they design that character using a limited number of character points, called CPs for short. Now, Character points can be spent in a number of different ways. To increase personal characteristics like strength or intelligence, to buy special skills like martial arts or computer programming, or to build superpowers like supersonic flight or telepathy. So basically, if you wanted to be Thor or Iron Man, you could put the points in however you needed to in order to make that happen. I was going to say Deadpool because he's my favorite, but this game was just a bit before the fourth Wall Breaker came along. Now, I know I usually get into reviews after I cover everything else, but I need to note here that regardless of the overall review, pretty much every single reviewer that wrote about champions pointed out how balanced this point-by system was for creating characters. In fact, I didn't see a single complaint about that in all the reviews I read. Of course, just buying skills doesn't complete the character. Champions also required players to set up the hero's skills, disadvantages, and all the other traits needed to make a complete character. What this meant was, at the start of a game, a champion's character would have a full backstory with friends, enemies, and other associates. They'd also have weaknesses that would come into play, along with powers and other abilities that they could utilize throughout the course of play. And, of course, players would be rewarded with more CPs after each adventure, which would allow them to fine-tune the character even further, including giving them the ability to ultimately buy away a disadvantage, if it was possible to do so. So, in a nutshell, the champion system was, at the time, one of the best ways to create a fully-formed, fully-realized character right out of the gate. Another big selling point for Champions is that it allows players to design their own custom superpowers within the system. The rules themselves note that powers are defined by their effect, so an energy blast would be the same power regardless of how it's delivered, whether it's through a laser beam or some other method. This setup allows players to have what was, at the time, the most realistic superhero simulation possible in a role-playing game it sounds like I like this game, I do, and through six editions, so have a hell of a lot of other people too, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now it has to be noted that Champions has never had a license to use comic book superheroes, but they're well aware that many players will want to play their favorite superhero using the system. So how do you do that without violating trademarks and copyrights? Champions solution so simple it should have been obvious. They have archetypes listed in the book. It takes the powers of different superheroes and defines them by type, which would allow you to figure out how to best build out your character to replicate your favorite one. From the Brick, who's a slow, hand-to-hand fighter with raw strength and basically zero defense, like the Incredible Hulk, to powered armor. I mean, do I really need to explain this? I mean, Iron Man, hello. If you look into the archetypes, you can pretty much figure out how to create your comic book favorite for gameplay. Like any good superhero adventure, Champions has its own base of operations, Millennium City. The books go into details about the city itself, and it acts as almost like a character of its own within a number of adventures. Now I mentioned before that Champions has had six editions. Second edition came out in 1982, third in 1984, fourth in 1989 fifth in 2002, and the sixth edition dropped in 2010. I could read a number of reviews from any of the six editions, but I'm choosing the words of Paul Pettengale, the author of Arcane Magazine, who wrote the following about the game when it ranked 27th on the 1996 reader poll of the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time. It wasn't the first superhero RPG, and it never had licensed links to any big-name comics, but it's still the classic of the genre. It popularized the now-commonplace points design approach to character creation. In fact, it's probably the most flexible, detailed points-based system ever, which makes it rather overwhelming for some new players, and combat can be a little slow. But once you've learned how to use it, no other game catches the feeling of superhero action in quite the same way. At the 1999 Origins Awards, Champions was installed into the Adventure Gaming Hall of Fame. And, Champions has also won three Any Awards over the years. It should also be noted that the Champions system was adapted for fantasy game usage with the title Fantasy Hero. So, it's safe to say that Champions has had a very long, very successful history. And it's one of the very few games that has produced its own system for gaming. That would be the Hero System, and since I promised we'd talk about it during today's show, it makes perfect sense for us to include it right here. The Hero System was officially spun off of Champions in 1990, with Hero Games referring to this first volume as the fourth edition, as Champions was in its fourth edition at the time. Steven S. Lang gets designer credit for Hero System, and it maintained the point-buy system Champions basically created. Hero system also uses three six-sided dice to resolve tasks, and power effects are resolved by rolling the number of dice based on the power strength, which are also holdovers from champions. I just didn't mention them before, so I'd have more to say here. Much like champions, rather than get into the specifics of character, the system provides the character archetype, which allows the player to decide what kind of character they want to play, then build accordingly based on the provided details. What's interesting to me in looking over Hero System is that if you own champions, you really have everything you need to create superhero characters, which in my mind makes the Hero System a bit redundant, especially considering Hero System doesn't attempt to branch out into fantasy or science fiction. But Hero System got a 5th edition in 2002, a revision to 5th edition in 2004, and a 6th edition in 2009. It should also be noted that Hero Games got restructured in 2011, so they released yet another version of 6th edition in 2012 called Champions Complete. It presented what they called, quote, everything you need to play a superhero campaign, end quote, in a single 240-page book. But I think we've been examining Champions and the hero system for long enough, so let's pull another game book off the shelf and give it a look-see. Villains and Vigilantes is next up on our list, and not only do we get a look at a pretty darn good game, we also get a bit of look into lawsuits as well. <laughs> Just follow along, it's, it's coming. Villains and Vigilantes was published by Fantasy Games Unlimited in 1979. Created by Jeff D. and Jack Herman, V&V, for short, had a rather unique approach to character creation. Rather than playing a completely fictional character, players were strongly encouraged to start the process with a version of themselves, with the idea being that this was the secret identity, a la Batman or Superman, or maybe this was who you were before whatever happened that turned you into a superhero, like The Thing, or The Incredible Hulk, or, hell, Deadpool. I knew I'd get a chance to use him at some point today. Yay! Yay! So, taking that version of yourself, V and V then uses random die rolls for the origins of your superpowers, the number of them you have, and the type, which can lead to some very odd combinations. A quirk that was noted by a number of reviewers of the system was that while the characters advance in levels and hit points, the superpowers do not, which gives a very different feel to the game at different power levels. V&V's approach to combat is also interesting in that it uses a table to determine the effectiveness of the attacker's superpower versus the defender's powers. Most other games of this type go roll versus roll or roll on a chart to determine damage and the defending power subtracts X amount from it. Fantasy Games Unlimited supported V&V from the launch, publishing adventures in 1981 and 1982 for the game. In 1982, V&V got a second edition. Dee and Herman authored this edition as well, and Fantasy Games decided to give it two separate releases. One was a single rulebook, which laid out the adjustments that had been made from first edition. The other release, however, was that favored release type of the early 1980s, a boxed set. This one had the revised rulebook, a GM screen, dice, and character sheets. Fantasy Games followed this release up with more modules and rule supplements, which continued until 1987. At that point, the spigot seemed to be turned off as no new materials came out for the game. That is until 2004. In 2004, Fantasy Games started republishing the original V&V rules and supplements in digital form at RPG. They gradually added the backlog of supplements until they'd made nearly all of the old V&V materials available in the new format. Now in 2010, things started to get interesting. That's when Jeff D. and Jack Herman, the creators of V&V, decided to release a new, revised version of V&V. They called it version 2.1 and released it through Monkey House Games. Now, at the same time, Fantasy Games Unlimited began releasing new supplements for the second edition of V&V. So, how can two companies release products for the exact same game? (laughs) Cue the lawsuits, folks. Now, here are the two sides of the story. Dee and Herman argued that Fantasy Games Unlimited Incorporated ceased to exist in 1991. They argued that Fantasy Games Unlimited was a new, separate company, even though it had the same owner as the previous one. Therefore, based on the original agreements they'd signed, when the original company went belly up, the rights to the product reverted to them. Now, as one might imagine, Scott Bizarre, the owner of Fantasy Games Unlimited, disagreed with Dee and Herman's version of events and filed suit in U.S. federal court in Arizona to block them. On July 11, 2012, the court ruled in favor of Bizarre, holding Dee and Herman guilty of defamation and unfair business practice, which would cause damages to Bizarre. However, this wasn't over. In January of 2013, the U.S. District Court of Arizona found that D and Herman own all the copyrights to V&V, including everything that had been previously contracted to Fantasy Games Unlimited. It was also found that Fantasy Games Unlimited had been using the copyrighted materials of D and Herman without permission. And, most importantly, the court found that when Fantasy Games Unlimited had allowed the time to pass without acting on its trademark rights to V&V, they had legally abandoned it. So that means D and Herman won, right? So how did Fantasy Games Unlimited get to keep releasing stuff? Well, since there was a ruling on each side, the two sides came to some sort of an agreement, though it's not been provided to the public. What we do know is this. D and Herman released a third edition of V&V in 2017 and continued to provide support for it through Monkey Games, while Fantasy Games Unlimited continues to support the second edition of V&V that the previous version of the company had released. You confused yet? <laughs> Try reading all the legal documents to figure this shit out. Let's do a review of V&V, shall we? Greg Kostikian wrote a review in Ares Magazine Number 1. He rated it 6 out of 9 and said, Villains and Vigilantes is an imaginative, enjoyable game. Its major problem is creeping d and d most of the game systems are directly derived from D&D and are out of place in a superhero role-playing game. Also, the short rules do not really provide enough background material and world design advice for a full-scale role-playing game. Next up on our tour is Superworld, published by Chaosium in 1983. Superworld came from the minds of Steve Perrin and Steve Henderson. Superworld used Chaosium's basic role-playing rules which also came from an idea of parents, but were codified by Greg Stafford and Lynn Willis. The BRP is pretty simple to understand. It uses a core set of seven characteristics, size, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, power, and either appearance or charisma, depending on the game. The scores in your characteristics translate into scores in various skills, which are percentages, and it's the skills that you use in gameplay. Needless to say, this is a percentile dice-based system. BRP treats armor and defense as separate functions, which makes sense because I could deflect a sword swung at me and take damage on my shield, but I'd take a hell of a lot more damage if I'm misblocking that sword and it hits me full on in my chainmail armor. Sorry for getting some fantasy on your superhero game, but that was the best analogy I could come up with. One more element of BRP that needs to be mentioned is that there's no difference between the player character race systems and those of the monsters or opponents. The only real difference is how the ability scores are rated. Okay, so now that you understand that, let's look at what Superworld added to the BRP. To build a character, you roll 2d6 and you add six. You do that seven times and you've got your scores for the characteristics. The sum of those give you the hero points you need to buy your superpowers. Or you can use them to buy skills or raise characteristics. Your choice. Another thing Superworld brought to the table was the ability to choose a disability, such as public identity, that would give you more hero points to use to further build your character. Think uh, Tony Stark telling the world, I am Iron Man in the first movie. There's your public identity. The superpower system is much like what we talked about in Champions in that powers are described by effect rather than cause. And all skill tests in Combat are resolved by rolling percentile dice against skills. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, in a percentile system, low rolls are good, lower rolls are better. With the specifics of gameplay out of the way, let's dig into the history of Superworld. It was originally published in 1982 as a part of Chaosium's World of Wonder product. World of Wonders was created for Chaosium to demonstrate the flexibility of the basic role-playing system, and also included Magic World, which was a fantasy setting, and Future World, which was a sci-fi setting. However, Super World seemed to be the stronger setting of the three, and therefore got its own release in 1983. It came out as a boxed set, which included three booklets. A 32 page superheroes book, which had the character creation rules, the game system, and two character sheets. A 40 page superpowers book, which detailed the powers available to the characters, the advantages and disadvantages they could get, and disabilities that could affect the characters. There were also two more character sheets in here. There was a 40 page game masters book, which provided everything the GM would need to run the game. A book of character sheets, a booklet of tables for the GM a page of cardboard figure silhouettes to cut out, six-sided, eight-sided, and 20-sided dice. But wait, Wayne, you, you might be thinking, didn't you say this was a percentile-based game? Yes, I did. And if you'll recall during our episode on dice a couple of months back, I noted that for quite some time, D20s were used for percentile systems, up until the creation of the D10, and later the percentile die. Thus... D20s in a percentile system. Nice. Between 1984 and 1985, there were three supplements released for Superworld, which provided additional materials for players and GMs, as well as adventures to be run. Unfortunately, Superworld couldn't compete with villains and vigilantes or champions, and so Chaosium shut the line down by the end of 1985. Steve Marsh said it simply in his review in Ares Magazine, number 17. The game is anything but chaotic, but should create change in any gaming group that sees it. It is well done, and well worth the price. Last up on the tour today is the superhero game that's my personal favorite, Mutants and Masterminds. Mutants and Masterminds, or m M&M and for short, was designed by Stephen Kenson and published by Green Ronin Publishing in 2002. Now, Eminem had an interesting story on the way to being published. In the late 1990s, Stephen Kenson had an idea for a superhero setting for a project that he'd been contracted to produce. Now, as happens in the freelance business, the project got canceled, so he was left with a partially finished game. If you know a creative type, you know that they hate having unfinished material lying around especially stuff they were contracted to produce. Now, when you're a freelance writer and you busted your tail on a project to get canceled, that kind of sucks double. So, he did what any business-minded individual would do and shopped the game around to various publishers. Unfortunately, he was rejected by all of them at the time because, as you might have figured out from last week's episode and our episode to this point, Superhero tabletop role-playing games were just not the most popular game in the late 1990s, so the interest from publishers just wasn't there. But he finally got a chance to meet with Chris Promise, who was the president of Green Ronin Publishing, and Promise agreed to publish his setting with a caveat. Kenson had to develop a superhero game system using the D20 system, which was all the rage in the gaming industry at the time. Now, Kensen had no issue with Promises Demand, but he quickly figured out that he could either publish the game under the Open Game License or under the D20 Standard Trademark License, but not both. The reason for that was if he used the latter, he couldn't put in the type of ability generation rules or character advancement that he wanted as he'd be handcuffed by the D20 Standard. So, he chose to use the open game license only, and promise agreed when he saw the progress Kenson was making. Mutants and Masterminds made its way into the public in 2002. Oh, and Kenson's setting? It was once called Century City, but M&M players would know it as Freedom City. The second edition of M&M got the Royal Treatment at Gen Con in 2005 as it was released to the public there with a wide release in October of 2005. Third edition came out in 2011 and has also been translated into Italian. Now we mentioned third edition last week as it's the base for DC Adventures and is completely compatible with it, but enough about DC, they already got their airtime m system is, as I hinted above, a heavily modified form of the D20 system. When I say heavily modified, I mean it. Changes were made pretty much across the board. Character creation, injury and damage, hit points, adding in hero points and superpowers, eliminating character classes, as well as eliminating attacks of opportunity m M&M also modified the skill list, made feat selection very different from standard D20, and considers equipment purchased to be a part of the character, and is therefore purchased like powers are. Yeah, going only with the open game license? That's a pretty smart move. Now, I just mentioned this, but it deserves an expansion. m M&M characters don't have a class, and they don't have class levels as we typically think of them in role-playing games. What they have instead is what's known as a power level. Now, what makes M&M characters different than, say, D&D characters is that rather than start at power level 1, which would equate to a level 1 character in D&D, roughly, M&M characters start with a power level of 10. What this means is that at the game's start, the character is already a fairly established superhero with some cool powers. Power level basically is the maximum rank of any combat ability that a player can purchase for their character. Each power level also usually grants a character an allotment of points to purchase attribute levels, base attack and defense bonuses, saving throws, feats, skill rank, and superpowers. So the power level is a very important part of the game. Another important part of the game is that M&M does not use hit points. The swap out here is a fourth saving throw, which is a toughness save. It's based on the Constitution score, and rolling a successful save allows the character to shrug off some of the damage. Because, you see, you don't roll for damage with lethal or subdual weapons in the game. Nope. They have a set damage, and it's the defender's rolls that determine how long they stay up. Also, subdual damage and lethal damage are separate, so a hero could choose to just knock out their opponent rather than kill them which is way different from Dungeons & Dragons as we all know. Now, advancement in M&M comes from PowerPoints, which are basically XP. They can be used to purchase powers, feats, skills, abilities, and devices. Now, later editions have adjusted a few of these a bit, but I'm working off a of first edition, so don't at me. <laughs> Hero points are also big in M&M. Now, we've talked about these before in other games. Hero points allow the unlucky player to still be able to hold their own by allowing them to re-roll failed rolls or ignore fatigue or other cool things that would make their hero look more heroic. And they're awarded by the GM at their discretion, though usually they're awarded when something bad happens to the character that wasn't their fault, such as the bad guy getting away without the hero getting a chance to stop them. The beauty of M&M is that you can set it wherever you want. There have been over a dozen different settings published in various supplements over the years, but I've played a game set in the St. Louis metropolitan area, which is where I'm from, and everything works just fine. So, if you're playing, set it where you live if you want m M&M and has been reviewed by pretty much every major magazine over the years and every reviewer has loved it and the sales prove this out as m M&M and continues to move product at a consistent clip and it's readily available at your friendly local neighborhood game shop to this very day. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm going to shift gears and look at game systems. The current plan is to deep dive the D20 system and the D6 system, but depending on how the show length looks, we'll add more if we need to. As always, thank you for your continued support of this show. As we creep ever closer to our one-year anniversary, I can't help but think that if it wasn't for our increased listenership, I might not still be doing this. So thank you very much for listening. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for phenomenal royalty-free music for your next project. You can follow us on Facebook at Roleplaying History Podcast, Twitter at RoleplayingP, P, YouTube, Roleplaying History Podcast is our channel. You know what to do when you get there. You can email the show at roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we look at the D20 and D6 systems, so get ready to get technical. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis in your role playing history.